Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the JPEG podcast. We're so excited to have you with us. Today's a very special podcast. Today, we're speaking with Peggy Ornstein, the author of the book Girls and Sex. She's joining us today to talk about her book and all of the things that she learned through interviews with young teenagers today and having some great discussions and conversations relevant to all of us who work in pediatric and adolescent gynecology. So thanks for joining us, and here we go. Well, welcome to the JPEG podcast for the fall. This is Nicole Tyson uh, co-hosting the podcast with our JPEG editor-in-chief, Dr. Paula Hillard. And we are super excited today because we have a wonderful guest, uh, Peggy Orenstein, who is the author of Girls and Sex, which we had recommended as our preferred reading at our last podcast. And she has so graciously adjoined, uh, agreed to join us today for our podcast. So welcome, Peggy. Thank you so much for having me. And I think Paula was going to um, do some introductions for us as well. So absolutely. We are absolutely thrilled to have you, Peggy, with us. And ordinarily, we start off our podcast with a little bit of chit chat about a book that we had agreed to to read uh, together and on the previous podcast. But we are so excited today to have you with us. I thought I'd give you just a half of a minute of introduction of, of who we are. So The Journal of Pediatric and Adolescent Gynecology is the premier journal of the field. Uh, We are the journal of the North American Society for Pediatric and Adolescent Gynecology, which is um, made up of uh, clinicians who take care of teens and young girls in terms of their gynecologic problems. And we're about half and half with folks who practice in the field of adolescent medicine coming from pediatrics and those of us who do pediatric and adolescent gynecology coming from the gynecology side of things. So that's our journal. We are who talk with teens about sex all the time But since we're also (laughs) talking about medical problems and the, the, whatever problem the teen is coming to us for, whether it be pain with their periods or abnormal bleeding, we always take what in medical terms is called a sexual history, but our primary concern isn't usually about the sex. Um, although sometimes it is, um, but we we have to get on to the medical problems. So we may not talk in quite as much depth. And I just was so impressed that you were able to um, to establish rapport with teens and you obviously did it so well. The teens that we talk to, I think we find that if we establish rapport and are honest and genuine with the teens, most of them will tell us pretty much anything we ask. But I'm, I'm just, I was so excited to read what you had written because you obviously had established such rapport with teens. Any thoughts about how you did it? Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. And I also just want to say I'm so grateful um, for your field of study because I, I mean, I don't know if it existed when I was young. Did it? It didn't. It I didn't. didn't. <laughs> I sure as fuck could have used it. Um, so I, um, I'm, I'm really, uh, it's, it's wonderful. Um, you know, I, I, people always ask me if there's some trick to having established rapport, and I, I don't really have one. You know, I mean, basically, I just asked, and um, I think because, um, and, and I think you have this advantage too. I'm not a parent yeah. of the child. And um, what I say is 
um, confidential or what they say is confidential ish in the sense that I change their names and change mm -hmm. details. So they can talk to me without um, any concern about somebody finding out and you know what they've said and it gives them a space that I think they're incredibly grateful for because they don't have it anywhere else. They've never, I mean, I, I'm not there to be a therapist or, or a, a, obviously a clinician, um, but I'm often told by the teens that I talk to that um, our, our interviews feel like that to them, that they have that cathartic feeling, that they have that you know sense that they're figuring things out for themselves mm -hmm. as they speak, and that they've never had. So many times they'll say, "I've never had a conversation like this before," because you know in our country, we just don't have. And and it's it's not you know it's not the f I, I I don't blame parents. I'm a parent of an adolescent myself, and we weren't given the language. Our parents didn't talk to us like that. Their parents didn't talk to them like that. You know, it's not. Um, it's not in our culture to have open conversations about sexuality, but, but in this day and age, not to do it is to leave those conversations to the media. And, you know, we're just not going to like the result of that. <laughs> so, so very true. Absolutely. Um, I was curious too, what, you know, what got you interested in this subject? Like how did this book come about? Um, well, you know, there was a bunch of things with girls and sex. I mean, part of it was uh, I had just written my previous book was was called Cinderella Ate My Daughter. And that looked at the pink and pretty culture of little girlhood and how that was shaping girls ideas about femininity and um, and the self and the kind of commercialization of girlhood. And that book took me till about 12 years old. And I thought, well, you know, if I'm talking about body image and sexuality and everything, you know, what does happen? Um, so that was part of it. I also, you know, I'd been sort of interested in the topic forever. Um, my first book, School Girls, looked a bit at girls and sexuality. Um, and then, um, you know, I'm also uh, the parent of a girl, as I said, and at the time she was younger. And uh, I, I felt like, um, you know, everybody, all my friends with older kids were telling me about, you know, hookup culture and binge drinking. And I just kind of wanted to plug my ears and... Um, home because I think parenting from ignorance and fear is always a good strategy. <laughs> so that's part of it. And then the other thing was that we were having this, we had just started having when I started doing the reporting, um, this overarching con uh, uh, conversation in the culture about sexual consent. And that is a super important, you know, no question, absolutely vital conversation, crucial. We need to be having it a lot. But that only tells you, you know, it kind of if, if sex was legal. And I wanted to know more about um, what happened after yes, and what the sort of quality was of the experience and sort of, you know, the politics, if you will, of what was going on in girls' lives. Um, and so the only way that I knew how to do that was to just go start talking to adolescent girls. Yeah, it is. It's like, I agree. It's just some of the most fascinating, whether you want to open your eyes to it or not, or your ears. Um, but it's very authentic and, um, and educational. Uh, your book is just amazing. I think it just so resonated both with uh, Paula and myself, because it's sort of our everyday life as, you know, providers for these teenagers. And, and then I too had teenage girls kind of going through my career and processing their experiences. So I feel that too. Yeah, my well, daughter is, is nearly 40. 
Uh, And um, she went to Antioch. And so she had discussions, she and I had discussions about consent where they first started getting national attention at Antioch. Right. Yeah. I I write about Antioch in sex. And for those who don't know, Antioch had an affirmative consent policy in around 1990, was it? That sounds right. May have been earlier. May have been earlier. That was that was just widely mocked and derided and attacked. And it was, you know, there was this, there was a whole first round of, um, and we're kind of defaulting here to, to talking about consent again, but um, there was a whole first round of activism around that, that just got smashed. Um, and the Antioch um, uh, a policy was sort of the thing that made the whole thing. The, the New York Times wrote an editorial against the Antioch policy, which is now a standard policy pretty much at every school. Um, and there was a Saturday Night Live routine that mocked it. I mean, it just got. Oh, I remember. Yeah. Um, it was. Tr- it was really. It was really sad. What, what year? What year was that again? You know, I can't remember exactly. I w- I'm. You know, I'm thinking 1990, but it may have been earlier. I, I can't remember. Or somewhere. I'll have to go back and add up uh, how old in, my daughter was when she yeah, was in college. It's in Girls and Sex, but I, you know, I'll that's <laughs> fascinating. That must have been fun, Paula, to hear the stories from your daughter as that was. Yep a hot topic it was um and sort of on the same lines i think a lot of us really totally appreciate the value of that mother and daughter dyad um so you know what was your experience with interacting with mothers and daughters peggy tell us about it well you know i i i I didn't um i i was really talking specifically to the girls so i didn't really talk to parents that much um that that wasn't really so much part of my research but you know it is obviously I mean, I would talk to girls and say, you know, what did your, one of the first questions I would say is, what did your parents tell you about mm. all aspects of sex? And basically, you know, there, there wasn't a lot. Although when you look at research, there's a difference, there's an interesting difference between what parents think they've told their children. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> their children. So whether that's because you did talk to them, you know, a bunch and they just tuned you out or whether it's because you didn't, you think you did, or they didn't understand it the way you, you know, they, that you said, whatever it was, but there, but the girls would often say, you know, their mothers talked to them. If anybody talked to them, it was their mother. I would say, what did your, you know, what did your father tell you? And they would just either laugh or say oh, nothing or, and that was actually true of the boys when I did boys and sex to a great, great degree as well. Um, and uh, um, so, and, and sometimes they would say things like, that they wish, especially once they were in college, that they wished they had more of an ability to talk to their mother, um, that they wish that they'd created that space. And now when I do uh, um, talks at, at, college, at high schools, when I do parent talks, sometimes I do parent talks and kid talks at, at high schools, and um, the parents will always ask, how do I talk to my kid? I don't, you know, they run away screaming whenever I try. And the, and the students will say, how do I talk to my parents? They don't want to hear about this from me. And it's, I just think, well, you're both, you know, you both think you want to, you both think you don't want to, the other one doesn't want to. So what is going on here? There's a disconnect for sure. And I will say, um, the other thing I'll say about that is that one of the things that I looked at was the experience of other countries and particularly the Dutch and in um, Holland, they have, you know, their outcomes are so much better than ours in all areas of sexuality, you know, whether it's, you know, pleasure or 
um, proper preparation or being able to tell your partner your needs and limits and wants and desires or enjoying yourself, <laughs> you know, all the things, um, being sober, you know, you name it. Um, and those, they did, they did a study of girl, 400 girls from uh, United States College and from um, a co college in the Netherlands that were similar demographically and found that what the girls said when they spoke to them deeper was that the, um, the Dutch girls said their parents, teachers, and doctors had talked to them from a very early age about sex, about pleasure, which is one of the really big keys that we don't talk about, um, and about the importance of emotional connection. And that while the Dutch parents didn't necessarily feel more comfortable um, talking about sex than the American parents, they framed the conversations really differently. So they framed it in terms of um, responsibility and joy. And Americans just talked about risk and danger. And that for me was a really profound shift, both as a parent and as a researcher. Yeah, that's, that is really interesting. I, I love the part where you're talking about the sexuality of the Dutch in your book and trying to process the idea of sleepovers for your own daughter as a an acceptable way <laughs> to promote. Yeah, and I really, um, I, I ended up coming down very much in favor of it under, you know, under the um, circumstances that, that I outlined, I mean, you know, not just some random person, but somebody that it, 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 what's interesting about it when they, when you read about it or, or think about it further is that it gives the parents actually a more, a greater level of control. And what we actually tend to do in our culture is force our children, particularly our daughters to be sort of two separate people when they're adolescents, the one that they show to us and then the girl that they are out there. And that girl that's out there is, you know, what she's, if she's engaging in um, some sort of sexual activity, what's she doing? She's in a park, she's in a car, you know, what, what's going on there? Is that really what you want? Whereas if you're discussing these things within the family, you have the opportunity to reinforce um, safety. You have the opportunity to know the partner well. You have the opportunity to make sure, you know, if they're in your home, that everything, you know, that there's, that, that they're, uh, again, you know, safe and things are, are are going well. You don't need to be in the room, obviously. <laughs> That's true. But there's actually more. It's it, it's a big um, pill for American parents to swallow. But if you actually break it down and think about it, you're creating a much safer, more hospitable, more potentially pleasurable, um, and more connected environment. And you know, again, sobriety is is probably a great your greater chance of that too um, for your child. No, that's a good point. And then maybe uh, going back to that, that you alluded to, and obviously such a focus in your book was this sort of lack of pleasure and enjoyment and, and sex is a chore and a responsibility or, you know, I owe him now. Um, yeah. That was such a great, you know, section. Um, what, so what, what do you think has um, kind of progressed from that? You think social media is contributing to that in a more negative way since the book came out and COVID-19? What, what are you sure thinking about that these days? Well, I think COVID has sort of, I mean, it seems like it's just put a kind of kibosh on a, a lot, although thing, it depends on where you live and, you know, what the restrictions are, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so some kids are sort of coming back, you know, in force um, in the hookup culture, and some are still pretty isolated from it. Um, I don't know. It's, it's interesting because, you know, I guess I'll, I'll say this as a, because of who you and your audience are, that it's so different. There, there was a moment I felt when I was a young woman, when I was an adolescent, um, which was between sort of the invention of the pill and the AIDS crisis. Um, I grew up sort of right in between those things. And 
um, where we, there was like this, our bodies ourselves um, driven sense of control and, and entitlement and even like a sort of political um, entitlement to pleasure in sex among a certain demographic, you know, among that sort of college bound demographic of girls. And I thought that was the direction things were going. That's, you know, that's very much what I remembered. Um, and they just went the opposite way for I think a whole lot of different reasons that would be too long to get into. Um, but today I think there's so much emphasis for girls on appearance over felt experience in their bodies and that everything, and, and, and there's so much um, sex has become, you know, you see it in mainstream media, you see it in social media, you see it in pornography for sure, this idea of male sexual entitlement and female sexual availability and male pleasure as the measure of um, a sexual experience. So the, the place where that was the most um, obvious to me, although it was across the board and, and, and shocking when I first heard about it because it was so not what I expected, um, was around oral sex. And what girls would say was that oral sex was no big deal. And they said it almost like they'd all read the same you know, social media post. But what they meant was when it goes from, um, when, when girls are performing it. The other way, that wasn't happening so much. And, and they had a lot of reasons for one-sided oral sex, you know, whether it was that they wanted to improve a relationship or you know, go further without what they perceived as the emotional intimacy of intercourse. They, they called oral sex impersonal. Though I kept saying, I think a penis in your mouth, kind of personal. Um, <laughs> kind of. To me. Um, <laughs> you know, or it was, they would say it was a way to uh, satisfy a guy when he expected it. And, you, you know, um, why did he expect that? You know, these, all these different things. Um, it gave them a sense of power and control sometimes. I mean, there were all kinds of reasons, social status. But I started asking them after a while, you know, what if, what if a, you were with a guy and he asked you to get him a glass of water from the kitchen um, and he never got you a glass of water. He just kept saying, hey, get me a glass of water. You would not stand for that. And they would say, well, yeah, you when you put it that way. And I'd say, well, why wouldn't you put it that way? Why would you be more willing to perform a non-reciprocal sex act than to get somebody a glass of water from the kitchen? I ended up writing a lot about this idea that um, Sarah McClellan, who's a psychologist at University of Michigan, talked about, which is intimate justice. And that is this idea that sex is political as well as personal. Um, and, you know, just like, I don't know, who does the dishes in your home or, or, or who vacuums the rug? Um, and it has similar components that involve, you know, uh, power dynamics of mental health, um, of who's entitled to engage in an experience, who's entitled to enjoy it, who's the primary beneficiary. Um, and, you know, it's so often when we break those things down, you see a lot of gender dynamics going on there. And one of the things that I, you know, it's, it's another thing I think consent education doesn't get at enough or help us our kids with enough is that when they don't understand the gender dynamics that come into play that can pressure um, in, an, in an unstated way us into particular roles, um, it's, it's hard to sort of account for those and you end up in these default behaviors. And I think it's really interesting to note that um, in same-sex couplings with girls, that uh, the orgasm gap that you see in heterosexuals disappears and girls orgasm at the same rate as heterosexual men. Hmm, that is very interesting. Mm -hmm. Intimate justice is the term. 
Yeah. I'll have to read some more about that. Thank you. I'm a, I'm a champion of that for our patients, for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> that sounds really yeah, it's such a fantastic um, term because I think that especially for kids, it, it helps them put things into a kind of social justice perspective, which is um, important to them. And it does, you know, it does bring up these issues of inequality, economic right. violence, you know, mental health and, and the questions are tricky and, and sometimes traumatic, you know, even for us as adults. But I kept coming back to this idea that when we were talking about girls and their early experience that, you know, I, j I just didn't want those to be something that they had to get over. Right. Well, and I like that it's intimate justice, not sexual mm -hmm. justice, because there's exactly. a lot more, right, to the yep. experience that's intimate. Mm -hmm. That's a great term. Um, one of the things that I know Paul and I both were interested in your take and perspective was sort of the, the times of, you know, thinking about these gymnasts who went through all of the abuse that they went through and sort of the more public viewing of um, not intimate justice, obviously, of this sort of rape culture and what people are willing to tolerate for so long. And, mm. you know, what what do you think about all of that in, in these times and in the framework of your book and your work? I mean, I'll tell you, um, when I started, it's when I started doing my reporting, um, these, these discussions had not yet broken into the media, into the mainstream. And if you read the book, um, there's a chapter that's about specifically about a girl who was um, assaulted. And in the chapter, both she and I wrestle with whether what happened to her was assault because she voluntarily drank a ton. And we had not yet evolved into going, wait a second. <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, when, some, when somebody um, drinks, um, we had not yet evolved into um, the... Um, we had not yet evolved into recognizing that uh, that you cannot consent when you're impaired, um, and so I feel like even in my own work and thinking um, in the last ten years, uh, things have come so far. And the Me Too movement obviously has um, not only changed how we look at the events of the day, but I think how a lot of us look back at events of our own lives. Um, so that's, you know, that's been interesting. And I think, you know, it, it is unconscionable. It is inconceivable. It is unfathomable what happened to those girls and that nobody stepped in. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, to my mind, honestly, I think every single one of those people on the, whatever they're called, the gymnastics organization should be gone. You know, I don't know why they're still there, any of them. Um, I think that was the, uh, the, the motivation for those brave yeah. ladies to speak up yeah. in front of the Senate. And so brave and so, and, and just such, um, you know, incredible models to show that they don't have to be, you know, shamed into silence. They, you know, the, it, it was an amazing, heartbreaking, painful moment, but one that I think um, was so important to creating cultural change. I'm just so grateful to every single one of those girls yeah, women they were very brave yeah, they were not, very brave yeah. absolutely the yeah. other thing that i just wanted to mention we're on the i'm on the stanford campus we're on the, the campus and the issue of the the rape of the unconscious woman by uh, a student brock turner right. uh, just just friday the book came out the book is titled know my name 
And during the case, she was known by a pseudonym and she came out that the, the woman is Chanel Miller and the book is Know My Name. And uh, I've started reading it. It's quite impressive how She's brave amazing. and articulate she is. Oh, so, she is yeah. she is a wonderful writer. I've read, yeah, I read the book. She's, she's fantastic. She's also a wonderful artist and a lovely person. Um, and yeah, I mean, um, I will say that I have, um, I don't, I wish that the culture at Stanford had changed more yeah. because yeah. I, I do know students there now um, or, or pre-COVID and um, I was still hearing some extremely alarming stories um, and um, in touch with uh, a young woman that I know um, personally, you know, that, that, that is a, a family friend um, who was often because of our relationship sort of asking me to talk to girls or, or, or various things. Um, it's not a solved problem there by any means. Um, um, I, I agree. It's, it's very, um, very difficult. And on the extent of alcohol and other substance yeah. use and fraternity culture and, right. uh, you know, it's still there in, and, and you know, what was interesting to me, I, after girls and sex, I wrote boys and sex, which came out um, in 20, early 2020 and before everything. And um, what was interesting to me was how often when I talked to boys at elite schools, they would say, oh, it's those boys at the state schools that do that. <laughs> and, See other boys. And I had, a, right, boys with worse SAT scores than me. Um, and, <laughs> and I had a conversation, um, you know, I, and, and at one point I said, well, what about Brock Turner? And the response from the boys I was talking to was, oh, well, he was an athlete. Oh, my goodness. Oh, and my so goodness. The, the ability to sort of keep, Detach, oh, marginalize, huh? and saying, "Not me, not me, not my friends, not me, mm -hmm. not me." Not me. No, mm -hmm. and, and I understand that because you know we have said that anybody who assaults is a monster, and so it's hard to see what you may have done and take accountability for what you may have done. But there's a there's a wonderful um, book that was on. It's called um, "Sexual Citizenship." Um, that's uh, by professors of public health at Columbia, based on a two year study they did there at Columbia and Barnard um, of, of the sexual culture. And um, the, that sort of um, disengagement detachment was so common, even among um, boys who were describing things that you know, met the standard for assault. And in some cases they would sort of start talking about what they did and they kind of go, oh no, wait, and realize what they, you know, in the interview what, wow. what they wow. have done. So wow. I think, you know, it, 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 I mean, this is not, this is, it's obviously related, but um, it's not quite what we're talking about, but, but in terms of boys, helping them not only have um, a positive generative sense of masculinity and um, connection and healthy vulnerability, but understanding um, the, you know, I think so often what happens and, and what they say, what the, what the authors of that book say is that what, what kids learn growing, what our young people learn growing up, including those who are going to these very elite schools, is that some people, usually male people, um, when we're talking about a heterosexual couple, uh, feel um, entitlement to others' bodies, to girls' bodies, but those others, the girls, do not feel entitled to their own bodies. And mm -hmm. that that um, is creating a, a perpetually, you know, a, unequal and 
harmful environment that we need to interrupt. Hmm. That's kind of amazing analysis, actually, but I know it makes a lot of sense. It does. And a lot of that is about our silence around female pleasure. I mean, I, you know, one of the really central components of girls and sex, I think the central component was talking about, you know, why we don't talk about girls and pleasure and the, you know, the sort of, um, I mean, I remember looking at this book, uh, um, you know, those, there's, there are those American girl puberty books. You must know those, right? Yeah, yep. absolutely. Yep. So the, there's the care and keeping of you one, right? That one's fine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe they've changed this, but last time I looked at it, they had a diagram of the external genita- female genitalia that did not include the clitoris. Oh hmm. my goodness. Oh my gosh. Ran up to check that out. I will yeah. I will look at it. I've got a co- I've got a copy in our clinic that I keep to to let girls look at. Uh-huh. Um, I will I will look. I don't I drew it I in on my daughter's copy. <laughs> Good um, for you. And also, you know, it was I and they may I, I've been talking about this so much that I think in newer editions they may have changed it. Um, because I sort of shamed them publicly about it a lot. But, um, but it I was I was stunned. I was stunned. What does that mean? You know, I mean, you know what it means. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We know what it means. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's so interesting. Well, we're going to have to do some editing to those books. I think we actually have them in our workroom as well. Get those Sharpies out and like, in, man. We will do. We're great artists. We can do that. (laughs) That's great. And that ties me into the, the real, the really great question we want to definitely get from you is sort of some suggestions or insights or ideas we can do to help promote these discussions and injustice of intimacy in our in our patients and in our clinics. And mm-hmm. we work with a lot of, you know, younger residents and fellows and students, medical students, undergrads. Yeah, give us some wisdom, pearls. Well, I'll tell you, I mean, the first thing is to just start the conversation. You know, I mean, th- wherever you can enter the conversation, enter the conversation and don't ignore it. And don't always, you know, we really need to talk about that, you know, that, that idea of responsibility and joy as opposed to risk and danger. I think that's a really good model to keep in your head as you're thinking about how you want to approach sexuality. I would love to see in um, your field, somebody uh, work on um, a, a, a manual, a book, a, a website for physicians, um, helping them with these conversations. What I have, because I, I do get asked that a lot and I don't see a lot out there for that's directly for you, you know? Um, on my website, which is just my name, PeggyOrnstein.com, I have a bajillion resources and you are 100% free to just pick them up and put them on your website or, or put them in your waiting room or hand them to kids or, you know, make your own web, own web page. I I've talked to, um, um, pediatricians more than, um, adolescent gynecolo- uh, gynecologists, um, who have done things like create an anonymous, um, I mean, this is work and labor and probably money, but create an al- anonymous, um, text line where, where pe- kids can text with, uh, questions. Um, that they have and, and get them answered by a nurse or, or some other person. Um, but I think that you that educating yourself um, also is the first step. And that means looking at um, the is- all, you know, all of the kinds of issues that I'm raising in girls and sex. You know, how are we talking to girls or girls about pleasure? Because if they don't think that sex is about pleasure, then they don't think that sex is for them. They think it's for the other person. 
Um, how do we, you know, how are we inclusive? Um, we, we have mostly talked about heterosexual kids, but how are we inclusive? Um, how are we talking about, how are we helping, what resources are we giving them to understand gender dynamics, to understand consent? What space are we giving them um, to be able to talk about these things? Is there a way in a practice to have um, some kind of, you know, group or bring in speakers or do something? I mean, I know that your time with a patient is so limited um, that, that it can be hard. Um, but, you know, I'm sure that you remember, and, and part of why you went into this field, um, to remember that, there's my dog, I don't know if you can hear her. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, she's protecting me. Uh, but, but that um, a small thing can mean a lot for, to a teenager. You know, you can say one sentence to them that is almost a throwaway and they will remember it 40 years later, you know? That, mm -hmm. And so I think that you can't underestimate the impact you can have by shifting the narrative. You know, one of the things that I um, talk about uh, is changing the metaphor um, for that the, in the way Americans talk about, we, you know, we, we all grew up with that baseball metaphor, right? Like you know, <laughs> and in that metaphor, that. you know, what are the girls? They're not even the other team, they're the, they're the field, right? Right. A heterosexual girl is the field in that in that metaphor. So Al Vernacchio, who's a um, sex ed teacher outside of Philadelphia, uh, suggested um, changing it to a metaphor for pizza, that sex is like a pizza, because like, you know, you decide whether you want to have a pizza, maybe don't even <laughs> have a pizza, and then you go out for pizza, you always are interested in what the other person wants on their pizza, you would never, you know, you, you, you might, if the other person wants pepperoni and you want mushrooms, you talk about it, or you go have these, or you have pepperoni <laughs> this time and mushrooms next time. Or if you keep saying you want pepperoni and I keep kosher, I'm going to stop having pizza. And I'm not going to have pizza with you. Forget it. You know, <laughs> I love that. You would never shove pizza down somebody's throat. That would be, you know, I mean, it's a little bit like the tea thing, but it's, exactly. um, but it's, but it does, it's, and, and it's not in and of itself enough, just like the tea thing isn't in and of itself enough around consent, but it, it, it shifts their thinking a little bit. Yeah. And yeah. I always say to girls too, you know, like you have to say what you want for your toppings, you know, girls don't speak up. And if you don't say what you want, you're going to end up with green pepper and nobody wants green pepper on their pizza. <laughs> you know? So how do we help girls exercise these muscles? Um, and that's the responsibility of all of us adults, you know, yeah. of teachers, of doctors, of, of parents, um, and, and, and I think that's part of it too, is how do we, you know, are there ways to educate your parents so that they can have resources and, and have the conversations that they really do want to have um, with their daughters to make sure that their daughters have um, positive, positive, pleasurable um, experiences that they are uh, in control of and are, you know, um, wanting to be there and getting their needs met and their limits respected. Yeah, I mean, it almost should be sort of part of OBGYN prenatal care for the parents and pediatricians yeah. as they're educating, you know, about seatbelts. Yeah. I mean, I always say, when people say, when do we start? I always say, right. you know, you got to start at birth by naming the body exactly. part. Right. Exactly. You wouldn't call your elbow your woo-woo. You know, <laughs> let's call it a vulva. Let's do it. You know, and, and when they're, um, you know, as, as you know, well, now I'm sure, you know, toddlers masturbate a lot so you know it feels you know, when, when you're you know you say it feels really good to touch your vulva don't do it you know we but we don't do it in grandma's thanksgiving table we do it <laughs> right so to, to be able to start having those those little you know little conversations um 
with a child to say, you know, if Aunt Nancy wants to hug your daughter and your daughter doesn't want to hug Aunt Nancy, you know, suck it up, Aunt Nancy, because that's a lesson in consent. You know, yep. she does not have to do yeah. that. So thinking about sort of how we're raising our children and what we what messages we're giving them that then because it's not like sex is in a silo separate from everything else, the way that we tend to treat it. The rules apply, you know, and, and, and we, there's a lot that a lot of bridges that we can build between, you know, playing on the, like I said, hugging Aunt Nancy or playing on the playground and you don't hug unless somebody hug and says it's okay or whatever, um, that, that are easy to build and that create the scaffolding so that we can have those conversations later. You know, are, are, what books are in the home? Do you have the Roby Harris books in your home or, you know, sex is a funny word or whatever the book is, you know, these, these sex positive books. There's a lot of ways to sort of create an environment so that you're not suddenly when your child is 16 thinking, oops, better talk about sex now. That's <laughs> tough. You can do it, but it's tough. Right. And including the dads, like you mentioned, too, yeah. if, they're, if they're present and available. Yeah. I mean, I do remember <laughs> my daughter doesn't really like me talking about her. So don't mention that I am. But when she was little, <laughs> you know, when you have to be out in front of it, too, she I remember sitting at the table, you know, and suddenly the spoon stopped halfway to her mouth. She was about seven, maybe six, seven years old. And she said, I understand, mom, that there's the sperm cell and the egg cell that make the baby. But how does the sperm get the egg? And my <laughs> kind of looked at me like, you, you know, you have, <laughs> that's yours. <laughs> and I just said, you know, honey, that's such a good question. Well, after dinner, let's look at your book and we'll read about it together. And we did. And there that was that, you know? Yeah. Perfect. Right over soup. <laughs> you know, rather than just like freaking out and going, oh, what do I say? You know, you, you got to sort of be ready and just treat it like they're asking any other question because that is any other question. Right. Right. Oh, that's beautiful. I love it. Well, we really, really appreciate all your time, Peggy. This was such a great um, summary of all these things we're also passionate about. And I think we're all going to learn really great things from this. I know I'm going to start using that word intimate justice and thinking about responsibility and joy. Yeah. Cause I love oh, thank that. You. Uh, I appreciate it. I just want to, I want to say just kind of um, one more thing or two more things, I guess one is I, again, I just want to thank you so much. And, and the listeners of this podcast are such a crucial population doing such wonderful work. And, and I'm so appreciative um, and secondly, I wanted to say that I'm actually now starting to do um, a, a book or, or looking into research on midlife women and sexuality, including how some of these things of, as we were younger affected us when we were older and sort of what's going on in our lives now. Um, and while I know it's not your patient population necessarily, um, I assume that listeners of this podcast have interest in that or maybe have ideas or maybe have thoughts about interviewing um and, and or, or want to be interviewed so if there's anybody out there who is interested um please feel free to contact me you can find me through my website well that's wonderful well a lot of us are OBGYNs and still practice um adult gynecology as well so i think you'll get a large reception actually i would be thrilled i, I could i could use the support help and insight so and then and then i think maybe you and i should connect down the road about this uh resource for our doctors about sexuality yeah. you know maybe like an instagram where people can ask questions freely or we yeah. have to brainstorm together i think that Something. would be fun i mean i just i do really do i get asked that question and i have not found it i love when you find these gaps those are the fun ones to I know. yeah so it's really that. it's really something that needs um addressing by somebody you know and and it seems like you're 
um, journal is the place to sort of get that rolling. I absolutely. Lots of great ideas. Lots mm -hmm. of lots of things to think about. Thank yeah. you so much. My pleasure. It was wonderful talking to you. Oh, thank you, Peggy. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, it's a wrap. Thanks, everyone, for listening to our podcast today with our guest, Peggy Ornstein. I also wanted to share if anyone has any questions or suggestions, please reach out to us by email. Uh, you can reach our editor-in-chief, Dr. Paula Hillard, at jpag, editor-in-chief at gmail.com. And Peggy Ornstein's website that she alluded to is www.peggy, P-E-G-G-Y, Ornstein, O-R-E-N-S-T-E-I-N.com. A lot of great resources there and a link to all her books. I think all of you would definitely enjoy The Girls and Sex. All right. Have a great day. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye.